we've gotten very complacent because when I talk to clinics about even having insurance and stuff, they're like, we're busy enough. So I don't really care if I can't get somebody in. I don't need to cater to the clients. Entrepreneur, MBA, former band field owner, and then involved with a big practice group. So what's he think about things? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, a doctor who has wandered the veterinary marketplace. Dr. Jeff Rothstein was most recently president and co-founder of the MVP Veterinary Practice Chain, where he now advises on real estate and other matters. I've known Jeff for more than 15 years, way back in my Veterinary Economics magazine days, and he always proves a calm, nuanced, people, and numbers-focused thinker. So we wander through a lot of topics here, so sit back. And Jeff, you lived through the last recession, so what happens in the next one, and how could it affect staffing? Look, there's a lot of competition, no doubt, in terms of staffing, and you can get into whole efficiency, you know, discussion as well. We got, I think in general, less efficient because of COVID. So if you moved from 20 minute appointments to 30 minute appointments, you know, most people didn't move back. And so some of it is we've got more comfortable with that. Maybe there are less team members to be had. And people's work-life balances have changed, and COVID impacted that. So people just don't want to necessarily work as much. So, you know, it gets into that supply and, you know, demand and shortage issue. It comes back to, I think, treating your people well. But, I mean, that's in a number of different things. So, yeah, it's compensation, but it's how do you value them, what support do you provide for them? And so a lot of times that, you know, it's a good culture, maybe it's sharing profits with them so that they feel rewarded for their hard work. So I think there's a lot of, a number of different levers you can pull. Benefits is an important one to the team. And that's something, again, when I looked at what does group medicine bring to us, I think um, our group and some others really have world-class benefits that I think any independent group can do as well. You just have to, you know, make that a mission and, you know, basically you need to, you know, price your services accordingly to, you know, if that's something you're concerned about that cost. But I think we are, you know, growing into a real profession in a sense and a real business. And I think the groups, you know, lead in that effort. So how do you attract that talent? It is, you know, I think it's multifactorial. So you've got to, you know, uh, be strong in, I think, in a bunch of those different areas. But, you know, making sure your people are appreciated goes a long way, compensating them accordingly. That opportunity for growth, I think, is another one where people see that they can rise up. And then training and mentoring, another really, you know, big one. I talk about being that small island where you can get really stagnant. And so there's just a lot of opportunities and a lot of excitement 
I think when you, you know, get into that right environment. And sometimes it's, you know, you may have, you know, your own little pod of clinics. And so within that, you know, network, you've got some sister hospitals and the managers can bond with each other or you do some team events. So it's all those things that go into the mix. And I think turnover, you know, is a biggie. So, you know, you want to obviously limit that. And, you know, those are things that I think groups are good at measuring that and some are better than others that I think, you know, doing a good job with, you know, keeping the team on track. (laughs) So two of the major things you mentioned, groups would naturally have an easier time. So one thing is the benefits. So it's easier, the larger your pool of employees, the more money you're churning through, the better negotiator you can have on getting better benefits for people. And the other part, a career trajectory at independent practices, oftentimes a career trajectory is kind of hard. There's not, maybe there's a practice manager, you can move up an admin, but beyond that, how do we build those new roles? So if you were not like right now, if you were not in a thinking like group wise, if you're thinking, Ooh, I've got a great high functioning, you know, one independent practice without outside a chain in a group. How would you sort of, are there ways you could imagine you could build career path or would you just have to let people go? And there are ways in which you'd be like, well, how would we make these benefits work when we're a much smaller business? Sure. I think a lot of it is embracing that business. And I'm still a huge fan of the independent clinic. Yeah. And I think there's a ton of opportunities there, but it's growing that business and involving the team. And maybe it's, you know, having a manager get certified as a CVMP. So always, you know, it's continuous improvement and continuing education opportunities. And if the practice is growing, then, you know, people can also move up the ladder in that aspect. And the benefits, you know, the complaint I get, and I'm in some management groups and that are originally were primarily independent, but it's like, how do you compete? I think in a lot of ways it's easier to compete as an independent because that's a, you know, can be a really attractive environment. You know, it's not like every graduate's like, rah, rah, I want to go work for, you know, a corporate (laughs) group. Right. So even if, as you look at some groups that are paying, we'll pay off your student debt, you know, $250,000, it sounds, you know, crazy, but there's strings attached, right? So if that's over, you know, five to seven years, what is your cost of not having, for most practices, if you have doctors, the people will come. So you, you know, so you can, you know, keep that person gainfully employed, but you can't grow without them. So I think sometimes we get really narrow-minded and nervous as an individual practice, but the reality is I think there's some competitive advantages there. I think you need to, you know, price accordingly, and it's not like you can't come up with good mentoring programs. I mean, so much of mentoring, you know, like for Banfield and, and a lot of the groups, there's just a lot of online learning, right? So there's no shortage of online virtual, you know, a CE that you can get, whether it's on surgical procedures, anesthesia, any of those types of things. So you can create a really good program, you also have contacts with neighboring clinics and they can, you know, go and spend some time at those clinics. So I think there's definitely ways that you can compete, but, you know, you need to take 
a new graduate and get them up to speed so they can be a good producer pretty quickly if you're going to be facing starting salaries of 120000 or more. So I think it's just not being short-sighted for the most part. And they have the same potential to grow those people. And if everybody's paying something based on a 20% of production, just as an example, you can do that too. And you can also look at it and say, what's my cost of not having that person? What's the cost of not providing benefits? So I think uh, practice will be more successful. You'll be more profitable and ultimately earn more as a owner if you are not too narrow-minded. Okay, so speaking of narrow-minded, I did want to play because I I see these two conflicting forces people have talked about, which is more work-life balance. So they don't want to work in general if it was presented like physicians sometimes get in their residencies and things. When you come in 40, 50, 60, 70 hours, this is the kind of thing, this is how you become resilient. This is how you, the trial by fire. And some now, you know, maybe many physicians, I know many veterinarians are coming out and saying, I don't want that kind of life. I want to make sure I maintain, you know, my emotional health, my mental health, my personal life, as much as I want to give into the professional life. So I want to lock those hours and not sort of devote myself fully to this new career for a long length of time. So I want to work a few hours. And then now with the demand for people so high, practice owners now face, well, I I need to pay, as you said, these retention bonuses, signing bonuses, making sure you pay the same production levels at these other places you need to compete. People want to work fewer hours sometimes, and it's harder to hire, and they want more money. So fewer hours, more money. In your head, I can understand why a practice owner might get frustrated with that. Thinking about that, how would you encourage people to think about that? Yeah, I mean, we hear it and discuss it every day, right? <laughs> right? In terms of amongst whether it's amongst my colleagues and peers and ownership positions or at groups, it still fundamentally comes down to you earn your keep. So you know what? If you want to tell me, let's find a happy medium. Maybe I need two bodies instead of one body, you know, but the cost is ultimately, you know, from my standpoint, hey, you want to work 30 hours a week, then, you know, if you can produce $600,000, then I can pay 120000 As long as you can respect you're working less, you are going to earn less, then maybe we, there's not a problem with it. I think it's just that at the end of the day, maybe I have to say, you know what, it's not going to fit for me to have you work 30 hours. So maybe you're not the right candidate. I need someone that's, you know, that's going to do 40. Or maybe I find two people that are going to do 30 hours. It, at the end of the day, you've got to find that ideal candidate, but it may be, you know, more than one person. So if we talk about where have all the vets gone, this is just one factor that, you know, we're working less hours. The other thing I think you find is a new graduate there's still, you know, for that first three years, probably want to say, yeah, you know, big deal. I'll work for you for 40, 45 hours. So they're learning new stuff. They're finally out of school and doing the thing. Right. So I think the biggest thing is to train them up by the term I like to use as quickly as possible in that first year or two. There's some people that, you know, in that time frame can become extremely productive. So when you teach them efficiency, in the exam room and in the surgery room, that makes a big difference. And it can be frustrating to a longer term veterinarian who might say, wait a minute, they're starting at 120 and I'm making 120 now, 
but a lot of times a new grad within a year or two is producing more than the older grad. And so this model of, you know, really working hard and strong mentorship in the first years is really important and having that confidence to charge appropriately. And so I think, again, when it's an independent practice, I mean, there's a lot of different programs where I think it's overstated that, you know, a group is getting that much, you know, better a deal. There's all types of programs through AVMA and there's all different deductions. So I, I would argue that, you know, um, that's not like I'm getting a huge, you know, benefit on those things. Now I may get better pricing on my COGS, you know, cost of goods sold. On the other hand, there's no shortage of buying groups out there, you know, that independent hospitals can join. So I also think, look, if I can go and see Dr. Jeff, you know, eight out of 10 times, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to beat that, that personal touch of an independent practice. Now, there's no reason I had this discussion with a colleague last night who was very strong, you know, because he was mostly in independent practice until we bought his practice. You know, if you build the right culture and you build, you know, your managers go through leadership training, there's no reason a group practice can't have that feel and want to grow. Actually, my friend was a dentist. That's who I was having the discussion with because he had sold his group dental practice. He's like, yeah, the group came in they don't, you know, I go in to visit and the light bulbs around this and they're just not, you know, <laughs> is, you know, monitoring it as well. And I pushed back on that and said, well, you know, especially in this process of the group setting, I think weeds out those that are, you know, going to be strong managers because you just don't have the, I don't want to say tolerance, but you need you know, strong leaders in those settings. And so you can have some really great people. I still think, gosh, you could open up a practice today and do, I think, really well. And, you know, seeing that same doctor who's, you know, very hungry to grow the practice and has that personal touch, you know, there's something to be said about that. So I'm, as an independent practice, I'm not particularly worried about a group who said, I think I could compete just fine. And I may, frankly, I think if it is that personal service, and again, it's not every, you know, individual owner has that, but I mean, if you bring that to the table and you really go out of your way to compete, you know, here's my cell number. If you're just available and compassionate and engaged, you know, you can charge a higher price. One of the things I got out of a management meeting a lot of years ago was your price should be, don't listen to the 10% of the clients complaining about price. You should increase your price until you start losing business. And there's a lot of theories on pricing. And I argue when I get into talking about pet insurance and wellness plans and stuff that we are veterinarians and the practices, we subsidize, you know, the cost of care because we're compassionate for the pets. We want them to be able to get the care they need. But I think actually it has a reverse effect that we keep prices where clients are not really compelled to have to plan and push, you know, and plan forward where, you know, what do we do in, you know, human healthcare? We plan for the future for both wellness and accident and illness. And so, you know, we're prepared for it when those times come and we're not very prepared for it, you know, in this profession. 
Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Do you have an overall strong opinion on whether hospitals should be for all the clients in the area? The old traditional veterinary hospital was for everyone. The wealthy people in the area and the very poorest people in the area would all come to the same hospital. And so that hospital would have to think about a wide range of services that are offered and a wide range of ability to pay. Do you see more people settling into niches in the economy as veterinary hospitals more? Like what you're talking about, hey, one pitch, raise prices until people squawk and business starts to suffer. That's basically whoever's coming in our doors, how much will they pay? And then when we hit that wall, then we, oh, we're at a good price, so let's stop. And most places are just like, I don't want to do that because I'm trying to serve not just the wealthy people, but also these people that can't pay. And I, I take your point that insurance and payment plans and people pre-planning for care is good. But knowing a lot of people won't do that, am I still supposed to serve them or we send them down the road to someplace else? Right. Well, I think we already have a two-tier system right now. Okay. We've gotten very complacent because when I talk to clinics about even having insurance and stuff, they're like, we're busy enough. So I don't really care if I can't get somebody in. I don't need to cater to the client. So I think we've become very complacent and it's almost an oxymoron because we just got to a point where we're busy, we're burnt out, and you know we're just focusing on, you know what, they come in, they're, I think most veterans think people are paying for, you know, they're paying for the services and they're not arguing about it. And sometimes it's like, hey, I couldn't get in for two weeks, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but, I think, <laughs> but I think there's, and in COVID, when you didn't even see the people, it's crazy because your compliance went way up. <laughs> And I think it was like when you look the person in the face and you just, you know, offer the best medicine, it was a lot easier. But I think we're not under a lot of pressure to have to worry about pricing and stuff because we're busy enough. And so I think we don't realize it's, you know, two thirds of the population is living paycheck to paycheck. I think the veterinary market two ways is much bigger. If you look at AHA and I don't know what it is now, $17,000 is what a pet owner should do, should spend on their pet if they did all the care, recommended care, okay. you know, and maybe they're spending 4,000. There's way, and that's what Banfield's saw. You know, they're like, you know, pets are a part of our culture now and there's a big upside and, you know, we're not even near what they should be spending. And we're also, I think there's a heck of a lot of clients that aren't, um, and maybe it's 
50% that aren't really getting regular care. So the market, I think, is much bigger. And the challenge for us is, you know, the vendor profession is let's not just be a two-tier system where, you know, we used to say that 20% got money, you know, maybe it's now 10 or 15% of the population. We're just getting to that point. You pay or you can't come in. That's all right. I got somebody, you know, we're busy. So right. you can't, you know, that's your responsibility. So we've kind of lost some of that compassion part on the one hand. On the other hand, I think if they're in the door and, you know, they're not able to pay for service, that still is an issue. But I think most of my colleagues are like, we got, we have no problem. We're busy and people are paying. So I think we're missing out on, like I say, two tiers that we, there's a lot more medicine that we can and should do. And there's a lot more people we need to serve. I just, just did a uh, little Zoom with the group that's involved in the insurance stuff. And this is a piece for me that I think going forward we need to figure out is there's a lot of dollars available for, they call the grants, but, you know, basically compassionate care fund. Okay. And so hospitals can have that that makes their team feel good. But, you know, every time you walk into... Rite Aid, Walgreens, whatever the business, it's like, you know, do you want to round up, you know, to the dollar? We can raise incredible amounts of, you know, money, I think, in terms of, you know, grants to help pay for care. Uh, My concern is we've always had that, you know, well, I don't want someone taking advantage of the system because there's a lot of people that, you know, you see they drive it in their Mercedes and they're squawking about the price. It's priorities and philosophy. I've got some very wealthy, you know, friends that their philosophy on a pet is it's a pet, you know, um, where other people, I had this great one a few years ago where it was the holiday season and the mom was in there with her two kids and the, I looked in the cat's mouth and I said, wow, you know, we got some really bad dental disease and stomatitis. And she looked to the kids and said, hey, this is where our Christmas <laughs> dollars are going. And that's a compelling story. But I think going forward, there's got to be some verification. You know, you don't want people taking advantage of the system. But, you know, if you can show with whatever it is, you know, financial statements, whatever. So we need a system that kind of grades that so that we can help those. I mean, pets are important, I think, for, you know, so many people and families that we don't want to rule out, you know, those that don't have as as many dollars. And so if we can get to that point, because I think there's, you know, no lack of ability to raise a lot of dollars for compassionate care. So it's a mix of responsibility. And you talked about, you know, how do you care for those that have dollars in the community and, and those that don't. And again, I think, you know, we're able to do that, but it is, you know, it's planning forward. I mean, a lot of clients um, and we get into the whole generational aspect too, but there's a lot of clients that, you know, I'll don't mind paying for the care. And I guess, I think, like I said, veterinarians are kind of elevated in status a little bit now because people are like, wow, you know, we're at their beck and call a little bit or they're at our beck and call. I don't have a problem paying, but let me do it over time. So that, aspect of the wellness plan combined with insurance, I think is where I call it the cost of care threshold, where I personally think we need to charge 
we need to be able to pay our people appropriately. We can only do that if we charge more for services ultimately. And then there's responsibility, obviously, to run the clinics you know, efficiently. But when we look at what we really need to be paying the people that stay in the profession, it means those prices have to go up. And the only way that I think is for people to, you know, budget out that care, just like we would do for any other health care or, you know, automobile insurance, those, you know, things that we are paying into. And I think we can figure those pieces out. And there are, I think, compelling insurance policies. People just need to be educated. Hey, you know, I, you know, we need this from the get-go when the pet is a puppy or kitten so that we're not at a point where we have so many people on insurance where we can, you know, obviously just, you know, start treating existing issues. Curious about MVP? Head to missionvetpartners.com and you can always email Jeff at jknis at sbcglobal.net. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review, tell your friends in VetMed about us, and if you want more, you're in luck. Jeff gives his thoughts on the next recession in the extended version exclusively for our leaders community. Learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.